Welcome, everyone, to Historia, a podcast dedicated to the study of history and culture. I am your host, David Williams. Let's get started. Okay, today I have with me Dr. Cheryl White, professor at LSUS. Cheryl, I you have several other great titles. I know you recently took over as the director of a local museum on uh, 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 here in Shreveport, as well as something uh, you are a director at the Sh- uh, Shroud of Turin. Yeah, so I am the uh, the academic uh, initiatives coordinator at the Spring Street Museum here in Shreveport, which is actually owned and operated by the LSUS Foundation. And uh, I uh, curate a, a collection, an art collection, um, that is actually on temporary loan right now to the Cathedral of St. John Berkman here in Shreveport as well. So I curate that collection. Wonderful. Well, I have asked uh, Dr. White to come in today to talk about relics in the medieval period. This is, this is a subject that a lot of folks don't know about. You may have seen them if you ever watch any movies during that, based on that time period or hear about them. And, but for those of us like myself who grew up in a um, hardcore Protestant church, uh, we, don't, we didn't know what relics were. I didn't know what they were really until I started studying medieval uh, history. And I thought it would be a, a fascinating topic and, uh, to bring Dr. White in. And Cheryl, tell us, what are relics and why were they important? Well, so um, a relic, we can start with really just the meaning of the word. Uh, obviously, it's, it's the same word that means relinquish. Uh, so it is, it is the idea that there is something that is left behind. And when we're talking about, um, for instance, human remains being relics, we're talking about that part of the person that is left behind. And whenever we say that, I mean, think about it, David, we're already making a theological statement because to say that something is left behind implies that something has gone on before. And so um, the the early, early church had, this actually has has an ancient beginning. I know that, that you're specifically interested in the medieval cult of relics and, and how that, you know, played out in medieval society. But, oh, but take, take relics, it back if you want. Let's take it back. Yeah, <laughs> I take it take it way back to the beginning because I think it helps people understand that we're not talking about something that is a medieval innovation. We're talking about something that was always part of mainstream Christianity. We're not talking about a fringe element of Christianity. We're not talking about something that was that was far fetched or superstitious. Um, the the earliest recorded full martyrology that we have, in other words, the first full account of someone who was an early Christian martyr in a written record is St. Polycarp of Smyrna from the year 155, all right? So we're talking about the middle of the second century. And in that first full account of his martyrdom, we are told by the eyewitnesses that his bones were more precious than gold and silver and and that they that the people venerated his remains and that word venerate of course means to honor that these remains his relics were honored not that they were worshiped but that they were honored and so in in the early church we have this this emerging very early theology that is based on our understanding of the 
um, the foundational doctrine, really, of Christianity, which is the incarnation. All of, of, according to that doctrine, God, you know, God became a man and he fully fused himself with his creation. So the entirety of God's creation is therefore imbued with the fullness of his grace. And early Christians understood that if you had the remain of a particularly holy person, that that was a way, it was a conduit really to the divine. It was, it was a way to connect tangibly you know, materially to right. something that was an abstract construct for them. Um, so it really is beautiful theology. Yes. Now, a quick question for you as you're, um, we're talking about that. Is there a direct connection between that? I remember a story uh, from Second Kings when uh, the prophet Elisha is, right. is dead and uh, they're burying somebody else sort of, you know, as they used to do and burying people on top of other people. And, uh, the some raiders come along, so they just sort of chunk the dead body in the grave, and it touches the bones of Eli- of Elisha, and the person comes back to life. That's right. That there's there's that Old Testament example, and there's also, of course, um, the, there's a, a rather famous, obvious example in the New Testament, the Acts of the Apostles, where um, where Peter's shadow, remember, um, right, yeah. had uh, Peter's shadow just just in passing by had this miraculous effect. Um, Paul's clothing, um, you know, and we're not talking about people who were dead; we're talking about people who were living apostles, right? Yeah. So, so there is this idea that that again it speaks to the same thing that that all of God's creation and the Christian understanding. Everything is imbued with God's grace, and so the, the fullness of that grace is available and accessible in a material way to people, um, and I think it's really an understanding that was so common for the first 1,500 years of the faith. By the way, this is not just a Western Christian concept. This is also, of course, Eastern as well. Right. The universal church. And it's really only been since the beginning of the Protestant movement that that sort of challenged some of these teachings that you've begun to see um, this this being much more of a you know for lack of a better expression it, well that's a Catholic thing you know but um, but it really was part and parcel of mainstream Christianity for all of its history right and again yeah. it, it's based on that that understanding of the incarnation there's nothing. Um, you know, it's it's not it's not like it's a man it's a man made um, superstition that we're going to to somehow worship this bone of a saint. Um, all of those all of those words I just used are completely incorrect. It's not worship. Um, it's not. Um, and it's not certainly not superstition. Right. Well, my understanding of it was always it it was almost like a focal point for faith. Sure. There was there was something that you know that was allowed. It was something that tangible allowed people to to focus their their religious uh, their religious faith on this uh, on this object. And of course, because the person was a saint, had some remnant of that holiness that was sort of right. still that, that I guess seeped all the way into the bones. It, right, <laughs> if you will. Right, um, and so right. it remained there. That's exactly right, David, and 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 I think you've you've expressed that very well. That it is um, it is something tangible. It's something material, and and when we when we acknowledge that that material aspects, material creation, physical things, um, 
have have some value in that regard of of, of connecting us to the divine. Um, it, it does not any way diminish the divine or the abstract because we live in a physical dimension. And so um, it, you're exactly right when you say that it's a way to connect to that that. Um, that greater being or the, or the divine, you know, the divine essence. Well, it, I guess in a lot of ways, I mean, it was, I mean, it can, it's very similar to many folk beliefs as well. We've lost that in the age of reason, if you will. Right. Um, but this idea that the divine and the mundane can interact with each other is the, the hallmark of, of the fairy stories. If you right. know, any, any story that you know as uh the J.R. Tolkien or G.K. Tennyson would have called the world of fairy, where mm-hmm. you know you you turn you you walk the wrong way around or the, the right way around a stone when the sun is in the sky, and next thing you know, you're in the world of fairy. Right, exactly, exactly. So so you see it really throughout, you know, it has lots of different cultural expressions, I suppose, outside of of religiosity, but but we're talking about you know a very similar concept that um, that the the metaphysical and the physical realms. I mean, if you even wanted to go back to classical philosophy, the the metaphysical and the physical realms are are not separated by anything other than our own physical limits. And right. um, and, and so yeah, you find that expression in a, a lot of different ways, a lot of literature and 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 folklore, as you say as well. well I mean, Zeus interacts with mankind. Absolutely. And, and womankind, too. Yeah. Yeah, and womankind, too. I wasn't going to go there, but since you did. Oh, well, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's, it, you got to go there when, you got, when, you're, when you're dealing with, uh, with the Greek gods, it feels like. That's, that's right. I remember mean, that, that uh, the, the, uh, the, the brothers there of Zeus, Poseidon, and, um, and Hades, well, we can tell which one drew the short straw there, right? Yeah, really. Well, and, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's interesting because I don't know if you've, had, if you've had a chance. I know it's a little digression, but the... Um, I just on a whim I picked up one of the Percy Jackson novels and yeah. those those I found absolutely delightful and I felt like they really carried out that that idea but what what I think in some ways it gives you that idea that the same kind of thing we're talking about where this whole physical and spiritual realms are interlaced they're not just separated you know they're up there we're down here and there's no right. connection the spiritual right. and the physical are are completely interlaced. And so when you have that as, as a foundational belief in your culture, as right. you would have had from the, well, I mean, it would have been the foundation uh, even before Christianity. Right. And Christianity brings, a, you know, comes along and um, as, as a faith system and people recognize that they didn't change their understanding of, of the fact that there was a supernatural that was interlaced, just their understanding of what it meant. Exactly. That's exactly and, right. And then, so now you're now we're in. You know, you you reach the point of Christianity becomes the the dominant culture, particularly in Western and well, Western and Central Europe as well. And right. um, so now we have these we have these bones and bodies of saints and other materials. Right. Right. And and you know, it became so much an, an important sort of integral part of the expression of the Christian faith that by the time of the uh, the last of the great ecumenical councils, which met at Nicaea in 787, there couldn't even be a church constructed um, without having a relic of a saint in the altar. And it's still a requirement today, to this day, 
um, that that no church can be consecrated without the relic of a saint. And so what is um, a little bit unfortunate about that part of the story, though, is where it really gets interesting is in the in the, the beginning of the high Middle Ages and certainly into the late Middle Ages, you see this abuse of the, uh, of the practice, not so much an abuse of the doctrine. I want to be very clear about that. I don't think that there's any change in the teaching of the church. What you see is kind of, well, for lack of a better way to say it, it, kind of, it, the the demand outstripped the supply, <laughs> right? And and you began to see abuses creep in, where obviously there are people who are engaged in wholesale trade in relics, and with with their authenticity very much in question. Um, and that is, of course, part of the uh, of the of the abuse and corruption that was inherent in the medieval church. Um, and but it has a fascinating way that plays out in society, though, because it doesn't seem to have affected the popular piety of of average people at all. As a matter of fact, it enhanced it. Right. Yeah. That's you that's all been fascinating. Yeah. Now I remember something, and you know, once again, we're we're relying here on a twenty uh, six year old memory in in the back of my head. And one of the essays I read for when I was over in England, and. What, what struck me as fascinating was that it was, uh, I think it was a crime to traffic in yes. relics. I mean, that was punishable by death if they got a hold of you, yeah. uh, if I remember correctly. Um, but it was considered to be permissible to steal a relic if you could get away with it. Right. Well, and, and again, it all sort of speaks to the purpose, I think. And, and as a matter of fact, it is still, in, in canon law of the church today, it is still forbidden to, to sell a relic. Um, uh, buying and selling of relics, obviously, that's, that's always been under the purview of the canon law of the church. The difference is in the Middle Ages, though, that, um, that in, in order to, to drive pilgrimages through your village or to your local church, or to your monastery, which which many of these little isolated villages depended upon. Monasteries depended upon pilgrims. I mean, that's where a great portion of their revenues came from, the sustenance for their for their communities. You had to have a relic. And 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 that's what people would make pilgrimages for. So I don't know if you ever saw that great series, um, um uh, Ken Follett's um Pillars of the Earth. I read the novel many okay. well, many years ago, but I, I've, well, not, you I've may not seen remember, the series. Okay, you may remember. The, the, I always use that as an example with my students because in the in the series and in the book, it's described that this monastery, of course, had a fire and they lost right. the relic that they had that they depended on, and so the abbot of the monastery went into the crypt and took. Um, like a bone from from a from a um, a, a body in a in the crypt and replaced it, and so that thinking that nobody would know the difference. Right. And and I and I pondered upon that for a long time, thinking you know academically about it because I'm sure it was a common practice. Number one, and number two, did did the people really know the difference? And then the third obvious question is, does it matter at all if the person whose intent is to meditate upon the divine? In front of the bo- of a bone he believed belonged to Saint whoever, is is does that in any way impede that person's personal piety? I don't think so. Right, because God recognizes what the person has done. Right, and and, and so I, I but I do think I use that as an example because I think it was probably common, 
And, uh, and, and of course, this is one of the reasons why you see the backlash during the Protestant movement. You see this backlash against this practice of the church. Um, unfortunately, I think what was lost in that, lost in translation, if you will, is the abuse of the practice obscured the beautiful teaching itself. Right. And I think that the beautiful theology behind it, which is, which is quite, um, really is quite moving when you think about it. I think the analogy I once used was the problem is the medieval church got the bathwater really, really, really dirty. And yes. unfortunately, the, the Protestant Reformation took one look at that bathwater and tossed it out, never caring that there was a really good baby in there. That's right. That's right. That's <laughs> it. That part of that analogy, too. Yeah. The uh, uh, I remember one of the, one of the stories and... Uh, once again, this is this is reaching back into my. There are two. There are two of them that I remember from the part about you know how how you would you know take relics from one place to another if they weren't wanted. The most macabre that I remember was a, I believe it was a crusader or a, you know some nobleman wanted to kiss the hand of the saint. Okay. So the the uh, abbot, you know, after some uh, begging and pleading, and I have no doubt exchanging of uh, a few coins or two, uh, opened the reliquary and you know exposed the body of the saint and uh, unwrapped the hand. And the nobleman proceeded then to bite off three of the fingers, uh-huh. so he oh, could take it back with him and put a you know and to create a church in his own area. Right. And have the part of the saint. And when and I, the, the part that I remember it it being a little bit. If that, if that wasn't macabre enough, the uh, when the uh, when the, the the good priest objects to this uh, you know action, his statement was, "Well, didn't I just grind the body of Christ with, with these same teeth?" Ooh, and I'm like, I have not. <laughs> I'm like, I remember reading that. I, I'm thinking this is really odd. <laughs> I have I have not heard that story. Was not familiar with it, but um, it certainly is macabre. And I don't doubt its its truthfulness. Um, yeah, there's obviously there's all sorts of interesting social uh, practices surrounding the veneration of relics throughout history, um, I, no doubt. And the other story I remember was that the uh, once again, as you said, you know, the village wants to build a church because they want to be a, they want to be on the pilgrimage route. So some of the men from the village go and break into the church wherever down the river and steal the the, the saint's body. And right. they go, you know, running off with the saint's body, and they make off with it. And then they made they made it about halfway to their village, and the uh, the the coffin, the reliquary, became too heavy to carry. They could not carry it anymore. You know, no matter how many men got it, they could not pick it up any farther. So they assumed that's where the saint wanted to have a church built. So they built a church there in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> they basically moved the villages. They, they, both villages kind of came together eventually. I'm thinking, you know, there, there's something fascinating in this actually because there was you know once again whether the story is is what we would call factual or not it tells a lot about how they looked at the at at the idea i mean once again okay this is where the saint wants to be the saint didn't want to be there because if she wanted to be there we we couldn't have stolen her body oh and without want to go to our doesn't want to go to our town because for whatever reason she likes this spot Right. With, without question, there are just some some really fascinating fascinating lore that comes out of this entire period. And you know, one of the things that I really love about this medieval cult of relics is that when you when you read some of the the social histories, the chronicles of the translation of relics from one place to another, and you see how much the average person, the average 
common peasant of, a, of any given village, how much they were invested in this, that, that the entire village would turn out for all-night vigils, for processions, um, that, that they built the entire community life around that particular relic and having it for, for whatever period of time they had. It was as if they had received a special favor, a special grace. And um, it, the stories are just fascinating. And of course, with people who don't know, that's why you have so many, you know, villages named things like Saint Winifred and Saint sure. Joe, Saint Joe, or whatever the whatever the name of the saint was. They were oftentimes yeah. named for the saint that was attached to their their church. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, their patron. Right, and um, and of course, I mean, there were some some places that had more valued pil- pilgrimages than others. Um, the the great some of the great ones like in uh, uh, of course, uh, Canterbury. Yes, which has one of the great works of literature built around that uh, a particular oh, pilgrimage of that. Right, and um, I got I had a chance to go to, to Canterbury when I was over there. It was just an amazing experience. Yes, um, Canterbury me. is a very poignant place for so many reasons. But you know, if you've been there, you know. Obviously, the main reason is, of course, the shrine is no longer there, and um, and, and that tells a whole other story about sort of the. Um, the, the post-Protestant era um, deconstruction of some of that history. Yes. Um, and uh, and, it's, and it, it really is quite sad. It's poignant to visit yes. there. Yeah. And, uh, of course, the other uh, one of the other spots that really hit me when I was over there, just a beautiful experience, was when I went to Glastonbury. Oh, yes. I, I tell people, that's I'm not sure if Glastonbury or Loch Lomond was my favorite place on earth. But uh, one of those two had to had, had to be it. So, right, this just yes. this beautiful location. Of course, I mean, so much destruction that was that was rendered, and you know, I, I guess what's so what's so sad about the England to me is that at at the very least, in places like Switzerland and in Germany, Luther and Calvin at least believed what they were doing, but the right. Protestant Reformation in England was just nothing but a but a money grab. Well, top, you yeah, know, the top, the top very, down. I mean, yeah, not, not to mention super, there weren't there weren't men like like Cramner, who I believe genuinely was. You know, you don't die that way if you don't believe in what you're doing. But the right. people who ran it were not Cramner. It was you know Henry right. VIII and and the nobles who just simply wanted more land for themselves. Well, and, but many in many of those cases, their personal economies were tied to whatever the religious outcome was. That's true. Right. Yeah, that's just uh, there's so much tragedy in that, but. Um, and of course, now outside of England, there were there were other. I mean, obviously, England's not everything. That's what we tend to know about because, as Anglo Americans, we uh, we tend to to remember the mother country. But uh, there were quite a few in France. Of course, Spain had Santiago, right, right. And then, yeah, it was. This was a, this was a European. This was a general. Well, Christendom. It was. It was across Christendom. Right. Um, we we tend to think about Christianity in the, in the Middle Ages as being exclusively what we think of as Western Europe, but remember that the Eastern Roman Empire lived on. Right. The Byzantine Empire lived on until 1453. Yeah. And and they have a great rich tradition of this as well. The uh, in fact that was the a flood of relics came sweeping across Europe, uh, Western Europe, in the wake of the Fourth Crusade. Yes, that's it. That is exactly true. Yes, we don't know specifically what relics. Um, We we do know, of course, about we do. We've got a pretty good record about 
uh, King St. Louis the Knight's uh, purchase of the crown of thorns, for instance. Um, but but we, we do know from Pope Innocent III's correspondence following the Fourth Crusade that there were many relics that were stolen. It is rather unfortunate for me that he did not get more specific right. <laughs> about what those relics were. But, um, yeah. And, and for those who are listening to this who are not medievalists, the, the Fourth Crusade got sort of sidetracked. And so instead of taking Jerusalem back from the uh, Muslims, they instead decided to sack Constantinople, one of the great cities, or probably the greatest city in Christendom at the time, uh, which yes. was loaded with relics. And they spent days looting gold and relics and uh, burning down one of the great Crusaders burning down one of the great cities of uh, of, of Christendom. Um, That's right. Sort of a you know, oops, we missed. Um, which was, a, and of course, that leads into something that you, of course, are very well known and respected on the topic, and that is the Shroud of Turin. That's right. That's right. We believe that it is it is very likely that um, the, the Shroud of Turin, to, which is today, it's called that call that because it is housed in Turin, Italy. Right. Um, but many, many people believe it to be the burial cloth of Christ. Um, and uh, although I can't speak to, to, its, to its authenticity in that regard, I can tell you that, that I, I believe that the cloth was in Constantinople in 1204. Um, I believe that the record is pretty clear that we can place, certainly there was a cloth uh, bearing the image of Christ that was being venerated in that city in 1204. We know that from firsthand accounts. And then it disappeared off the written record for 141 years. So um, I, I think there is a definite link to the Fourth Crusade you're, you're speaking about. Right. Yeah, and um, I think that in some ways, if you had to talk to someone today, if they know nothing about relics, the Shroud of Turin is something that they've at least heard of. I don't think there are very people who haven't at least heard of that. So if you want to, I mean, take, take a little, take a few minutes and just tell us, I mean, I know that's, that's one of your, your areas and one of your, one of your loves and just kind of tell us a little bit about, about the shroud. I mean, what we know about it, because I feel like the shroud in many ways is, is the story of relics. There's a story of how we understand and how we operate with relics um, that, that attaches to that. Right. Well, you know, and, and it, it, in many ways, it's exactly what you said. It, 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 it is, it is, can tell the story of relics, that's for sure. But this is no ordinary relic. And so, um, it, for people who might not know anything about it, I mean, the very basic information is that we're talking about a 14 and a half foot strip of linen cloth um, that bears the image of a man who was scourged and crucified in Roman fashion. Um, the the man was pierced in his right side between his fifth and sixth rib. He was capped with something that appears to have been thorns. Um, the image itself is so mysterious in that it only covers the very top fibrils of the cloth. It was created by a process that cannot be replicated in any laboratory in the world today. Um, we we've we've tried, we've made lots of attempts to use things like lasers and microwave and nuclear technologies. And, um, and, and we can, we can create or recreate some of the characteristics of the image, but not all 17 individual specific characteristics we cannot recreate. And the, the other issue of course, is that this cloth, the image on the cloth, is anatomically and forensically perfect. In other words, it's not 
it's not a painting. It's not an artwork. It is, it captured somehow the physical outlines of a man and not only his physical body, but the wounds that had been inflicted on his body, which matches the gospel narrative of the passion of Jesus Christ. It really only matches the story of one person in history. So this cloth, um, which has been in Turin since 1578, um, is also bloodstained. Uh, has a very uh, interesting blood type. It's type AB. It's one of the rare, rarest, well, it is the rarest type of blood in the world. And um, it is a forensic match for, you were talking about relics um, in Spain, it is a forensic match for another cloth that's held in Oviedo, Spain, mm. um, that came to uh, to Spain in the year 614, in a reliquary that was purported to have belonged to the Apostle James, Santiago. And this was a sweat cloth. Uh, Many people believe that it's the cloth that covered Jesus's face when he was brought down from the cross. Uh, It's called the Sudarium of Oviedo. It's mentioned in John's Gospel as being the cloth that was wrapped up and folded in a place by itself in the tomb. Those two cloths are forensically a match, not only blood type, but blood spatter. Um, to a level of certainty that could be introduced as evidence in a court of law that they covered the face of the same man. So once we've established the forensic link between these two claws, then I think it's fairly easy to see that it doesn't matter what the carbon-14 dating of the Shroud of Turin might tell you. These two claws had to have come in contact with each other before the year 614 because we know where the Sudarium has been since then. So... There's, there's so much, gosh, David, there's so much to, to, we could explore about this cloth. I don't, I, you know, I don't know how much you want me to, to say, but, but obviously it is, it is not like any other relic in the world in that um, it, it, it is probably, I think, and I'm not exaggerating, the greatest mystery we have. It is the most studied object in the world, and we still don't understand it. That really is amazing. I mean... I'll, I'll be honest with you. You can talk as long as you feel like you want to because, <laughs> well, I mean, to me, I, one of the things I love about, I love about, you know, history is that it is, it is so fascinating. And once this topic gets fascinating, you just about have to drown me to get me out of it. And I right. think most people are the same way. I mean, if, if, I'll, I'll do the, the typical podcast thing. If people are still listening right now, they're interested. <laughs> right. That's right. That's if, exactly if, they're, right. if they're not interested, they've already turned us off and gone, oh, those weirdos, oh, well, and moved on. But, uh, yeah. but no, I, it is fascinating. I mean, my, you know, my wife is an artist. And right. I remember the first time she took any look at the pictures in a, in a book that I had. Of course, she actually attends, as uh, she loves to attend your class at the, uh, at the cathedral when we're not in, um, you know, not COVID in quarantine. Mode. Yes, exactly. Right. Um, but the first time she ever saw pictures that I, I had in a book that I was reading at the time about this topic, um, she said, there's, there's no way you can do this. I mean, as yeah. an artist, there's just no physical way. And particularly yeah. when we're talking about the time period, I mean, people would think this, oh, well, someone could have done this in the 6th, 7th century. No, they couldn't have because that level of detailed painting didn't exist. Well, and here's, here's, I think, that maybe the most important piece of information that people should know today about this cloth. You know, 
1978, it was it was examined um, using those you know forty two year old technologies now, but right. but everything that that we knew that we could bring to bear scientifically on the cloth was done in nineteen seventy eight, and um, and and that that team essentially issued a report in the early eighties that said we can't explain it. You know, right. we can tell you what it's not, but we can't tell you what it is. We can tell you it's not a painting, it's not an artwork, it's not a photograph. Um, but that, that really is what opened the door for the Carbon-14 Dating Project of 1988. And the, the results of the Carbon-14 Dating, when that was published, I think sort of shut down a lot of interest in the cloth. It was pronounced to be some sort of medieval forgery because um, the dating came back as, as, as being between the era of 1260 to 1390, so about a 130-year window in which it was created. And, you know, I remember being in graduate school at the time, and it, it didn't set well with me as someone that, that was very interested in the relic relics in general, but specifically this one. It didn't set well with me and many others. We didn't really give up on it because as the evidence began to mount, the scientific evidence began to mount on the other side that could not be explained away by the carbon-14 dating. You know, how is it that in the, you're going to tell me that in the 13th or 14th century, somebody imagined negative photography 700 years before it had been invented? Um, because, because that's the most interesting characteristic of the cloth. When you're looking at it with the naked eye, you are seeing the photographic negative. Right. The photographic positive is what you see when it is photographed and you look at the photographic negative. Yeah, it's, like, the exact, it's the exact inverse of the way photography works. Right. And I don't know if there's a painter alive today who could, play, who could paint a negative. Um, and, I mean, and it's I, not easy. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. And I mean, it, it, as gifted as, you know, the great masters of the Renaissance were, they couldn't produce a human form that was forensically and anatomically perfect. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, I never really gave up on that. So it's really interesting that in the last year, and this is kind of a newsflash in the shroud world, but um, in the last year, there, there's been a concerted effort brought to bear to challenge those carbon-14 dating results. And a young man, a French lawyer by the name of Tristan Casabianca, actually sued the British Museum to get the raw data because the British Museum has refused to release the information. And he sued him under the Freedom of Information Act and got the data. And lo and behold, the scientist of 1988 violated the protocol by taking the samples all from one area of the cloth. Mm -hmm. And... And this is important. All the samples were taken from a from an area at the top left corner. If you're looking at it uh, hanging horizontally, the top left corner, which was rewoven after a fire in 1532, um, and even even th- that area of the cloth fluoresces a different color under ultraviolet light. So we know that there's a completely different chemical composition there than anywhere else. Mm. Um, So all this is brand new uh, data that's been released and published. And for the first time in 42 years, people are looking at this cloth again as if it may very well have a first century date. And that really is, that really is amazing. I mean, you know, to think you have something connected like that. I remember there was a, um, 
Lord, this must have been early 2000s. There was a big news story about uh, the ossuary of James, uh, Jesus's right. brother. And uh, there was a lot right. of, you know, discussion about that as well. Um, right. But the thought that you have something like this that can, that can reach back to that time period. I mean, it's just, that's just really phenomenal. Right. 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 And, and, you know, the, 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 um, the people who, I would, I would urge caution with, with regard to this relic in two different ways. The people who dismiss it as some type of a medieval fake, and I've heard that word so many times, mm-hmm. haven't really studied it. They don't know the right. complexity of it. And, you know, you and I sitting here talking about the, the cult of medieval relics and talking about stealing relics and translating relics and, and how any any ignorant peasant could go into a field and take the bone of a cow and pass it off as the femur of a saint right because that were that world didn't know any different right it boggles the imagination to think that that age would have produced something this complex when it wasn't even necessary and the image couldn't be seen by the way until the invention of photography right i mean first of all you would have to have somebody who 200 years before the great masters of the renaissance was producing anatomically perfect figures which didn't happen during the middle the middle ages right right we didn't have that it wasn't type of painting as you said there was no need to do it i mean you know there was um, absolutely no need to do it you know if, if the bishop tells me this is a piece of the true cross i'm not going to suggest that maybe he got it off the barn Right. I mean, that's right. And, and, and I think you know, that there's that one caution. And then the other caution I would say is that for people who believe that it somehow is proof of the resurrection of Jesus right. Christ, there's an added, an added challenge, a caution there is that, first of all, um, this, this may in fact be the physical remain of a metaphysical event. But science and human knowledge does not extend to the supernatural. We cannot prove right. the supernatural. Right. And so I, I, I always balk at the word proof, you know? Well, I just challenge people to, to really study right. it, think about it, and what it might mean for them. The, the, even if you could connect it back, all it would technically prove was that Jesus bar Joseph died in exactly the way that's described by his biographers. Right. It's exactly right. And, you know, in this day and age, there aren't many people who actually disbelieve in that particular aspect of it. Jesus is a historical figure who was crucified by the Romans in this particular way. It doesn't prove, as you said, there's no proof of resurrection in this. No, no, there is not. You you are not, you know, but but then again, that's, you know, religious faith isn't designed to have uh, concrete, concerted evidence. Otherwise, we wouldn't call it religious faith. That's right. Um, I remember uh, watching a show about the about mysteries or something. You know, one of those shows they have on TV. And the, the, shroud, the shroud was the first time I really watched anything on that. And um, this must have been in the uh, early, mid-90s. Um, okay. before, it was before 95, because I remember what, what house I was living in at the time. Is, um, and what I, what I found so interesting about that was there was a, um, there was a priest and of course, he has to have an Irish accent because that's like required, I think. Um, <laughs> I like, you know, of course, you have an Irish monk or an Irish priest. I mean, who, what else would you have? Um, right. But he made he made the comment that I love that he said, and I think this, this may be true for all of the things, all of this discussion of relics, and that is that 
there is no proof, as you said, of the metaphysical, of the spiritual. But right. in the end, it makes you think. Right. And it makes you talk about it. And that is its greatest value in many ways. Yeah. Because it actually makes you open up to the idea of there might be something there greater than myself. And that is what mystery is, after all. Mystery is something that's beyond ourselves. And, and whatever you call that, um, right. it, is, it, is, it is the same experience for every human being, whether you are a person of religious faith or not, you, conf- you are ultimately confronted with the limits of your own knowing. And if you stand in front of the Shroud of Turin and say, I wonder what this means, you're connecting to St. Augustine, St. Augustine. You're connecting to um, all the, you know, to Hildegard von Bingen, right. Thomas of Beckett, right. uh, St. Denis, you know, uh, any of the great people who have lived throughout Christendom. The idea that there is something that, that makes you ponder is, is what brings us all back around to that. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So um, that's really fascinating. Um, I... It's very hard, I think, in our modern age to appreciate that. But sometimes it's not. I think sometimes we, we do look out and say, is there something out there more than just what I see and touch with my hands? And, right. um, you know, that's, that's what makes, isn't what makes yeah. history itself so fascinating. I mean, in some ways we still have, we still, we still house relics to connect us to things, even with, without spiritual meaning. So it might be Thomas Jefferson's desk or George Washington's sword. Um, right. All of these things are, are sort of secular versions of this yeah. sacred tradition. Historic, historical artifacts are, um, as I like to say, the secular relics. But the historical artifacts, I and mean, we were talking about the same thing. We're talking about something that is tangible, that's a reminder um, of something that remains of that person's life or their influence or impact. And, and so in a secular sense, that it, it is that as well. And anybody who's ever been in a, in a historic site and experienced the feeling of standing in the presence of history knows well the exact same feeling, well, maybe not the exact same feeling, but with the similar concept of the medieval pilgrim um, standing before the relic of someone who lived before them. Right, um, I mean, standing in, front of the, standing in front of the Declaration of Independence. I mean, it's just a piece of paper with writing on it. I mean, I can buy, I can buy a copy of it down at Hobby Lobby. But there's something about right. standing in front of the thing that actually has the signatures of right. those individuals. It was written out there. At that time, it's it's a it's a it's a different movement that you that you feel. Sure, sure. So yeah, indeed, indeed, this is all fascinating stuff. It is all the realm of mystery, though, and that's um, you know that's mystery and history and uh, and and in human nature. Um, what a great story! Absolutely. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. And uh, thank you, to, David. Thank you for having me. And uh, definitely want to bring you back. There's so many, so many areas that you study that I I enjoy reading about myself. So we are okay. definitely going to have to do this again. I'd love to. Thanks. I'd love to. All right. Thank you, David. All right. Well, many thanks to Dr. Cheryl White for coming on and talking about this fascinating topic with us. Hope you enjoyed it. Comments. Head on over to historia.substack.com and you can leave us comments on our website. Please remember to subscribe to 
the podcast, leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your ratings help us to get noticed, and the more we get noticed, the more wonderful guests we can have come on the show. Thank you for taking your time to listen, and we'll see you next time.